0: podcast. I'm Mark Pringle. I'm here with my esteemed colleague, Jasper Murison Bowie. <laughs> <And>, Hello, Mark. Hello, <laughs> Jasper. And with our very, very special guest, the fabulous Simon Witter.
1: Hello, Hello Simon. Well, lovely to be here. It's, a, it's an honour. Well, I've listened to many of these and enjoyed them.
0: Well, you know, we, 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 we do our best, you know. <laughs> largely thanks to Jasper's editing technique, where he kind of hacks out all the dust bits,
1: right. you know. Um, so this bit will be out, then. <laughs>
0: <laughs> As anyone who follows Rock's Back Page knows, Simon's an esteemed journalist from the glory days of the New Musical Express, the NME. Tell us how you got into writing about pop music.
1: Oh, wow. Well, the funny thing is, when I don't think I've ever met a rock journalist who got into it by training to be a journalist. Everyone seemed to have got into it by a passion for the subject, yeah. accident, luck, making it happen. And that was much the same for me. I was in Vienna visiting my parents mm-hmm. and seeing my girlfriend ooh, many moons ago. 1982, I think. And we were sort of post punky very heavily styled at the time. And there was (laughs) an underground magazine doing a photo series of interesting-looking couples in Vienna, of which there were incredibly few. So they got to us. And uh, (laughs) we're in this large photo studio having pictures done, and I talked to them about the magazine. Mm. And during the course of the session, talked them into letting me review the next month's singles. And that went well. And so they said, why don't you be our, our London correspondent? And I was so painfully fashionable at the time. This is the winter of 82, 83, Mm -hmm. that I thought they wanted me to write a column about what's hot in London. And I'd been away for three weeks. So I genuinely believed I couldn't do that. And so I just (laughs) wrote. Three
0: weeks. Yeah. I I, I (laughs) no longer know what's hot.
1: And so I wrote a column about everything that happened in 82, a sort of year in view, series of fashion, politics, everything. Yeah. And immediately got radio and TV work off the back of that. And then I wrote from London for this magazine for 10 months, never paid. One month, I think I wrote 27 pages. But I was telling record companies in England that I wrote for this magazine. And neither they nor I had any idea how few copies it sold, which turned out years later to have been a 1,000 a month. But I think half, <laughs> half of that 1,000 was the Austrian media, which is why I immediately yeah. got other work. But so I got any artist I wanted in England because it was an easier time. Mm -hmm. First interview I did, beginning of 83, was Wham! when they're putting out Young Guns. Fantastic. Then I did Pete Shelley, Sunny O'Day, Malcolm McLaren, the Gun Club, the... I mean, I can't even remember, the Fun Boy 3. Basically, anyone I wanted, I would get because they didn't realise how few things this sold. (laughs) And after 10 months of doing that, I went along with a translation of my McLaren stuff to see Neil Spencer at the NME, who then took me on and... That seemed like an amazing moment, but I didn't realise there were then a load of sub-enters of the anime who then didn't like me because he'd taken me on. And Aww. it was about four or five months before I had anything published, which I think was a live review of the Three Degrees at the Wimbledon Theatre. Something <laughs> awful. <laughs> then various people would... Richard Cook wouldn't print my album reviews. He just filed them in a the desk without looking at them until I dragged him up on it at one point. He went, oh, this is quite good, and ran it. The live <laughs> review section was the most amenable. And interesting, I think Matt Snow was... This was in Carnaby Street. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Matt Snow was the live editor, and he was really good, because I remember him taking me aside at one point and describing my review as, I quote, shit. Yeah. But then he incredibly <laughs> helpfully went on to explain why it was shit, which, of course, is brilliant. And I think it's that, that sort of quite tough school, the anime at that time, the... Staff meetings were hideous. People would sit around criticizing each other yeah, openly yeah. every Tuesday over the magazine, and I was very glad to be so junior that no one mentioned my pieces because <laughs> it was a, quite a catty atmosphere. But that tough school, I think, is why so many people from the anime ended up writing for so many, you know, illustrious,
0: absolutely papers
1: later on. Yeah, because yeah. no one sort of mollycoddled you or said you were great yeah. when, when you weren't. Yeah. and I think it took me at least. Five years to get to a point where I can now read my writing without wincing. (laughs) Yes, Barney, our colleague Barney Hoskins reports kind of very
0: similar thing. He looks back at his early writing (laughs) with a sort of an an ongoing cringe. Interesting that that thing about these writers who hadn't come through, let's say, local journalism, because we had Tony Stewarton as a guest a, a few months back. And he was one of the last of that generation who had cut their teeth on journalism on local papers. We just last week ran a Chris Charlesworth piece from the Bradford Argus and something (laughs) on Led Zeppelin, and that was you know know, that's how he cut he cut his teeth. You first of all, the enemy had quite a strong focus on black music at the time, and you were very much part of that. In fact, let's talk about a couple of the pieces that were running of yours. This week, which was uh, an interview with Cameo's Larry Blackman and Zaps Roger Troutman, and last week we had David Stubson. He was talking about Afrofuturism, yeah, and that both of those artists sort of slot into that thing that they they both bands, or particularly Cameo, start off as a pretty straightforward funk band yeah. and then evolved into a much more electronic construct around time for
1: she's strange and, and so yeah. on and so forth and word up. So, so, what was your take on, on well, I mean, first of all, the way I got to Cameo was quite interesting because when I was working for this Austrian magazine, mm. one of the artists I interviewed was Prince Charles of the City Beat yes, Band, yeah. the Boston funketeer who made two or three cracking... Uh, Boston <laughs> funketeer. <laughs> he, he's listed in all music on the internet as reggae, which is the kind of thing that makes you want to beat your head against the wall. Mm. <laughs> he's... Uh, uh-huh. Well, okay. You, you, know, the, you know that stuff where people categorise music and they just... Just gonna go massive. So I'm gonna drop
2: a music clip of, of this in <laughs> yeah. and so the listeners decide if it's reggae or yeah. or.
1: it really is But no, I've been interviewing him and I just sort of said casually at the end of it, you know, are there any, just fishing really, are there mm. any any good funk bands from America I should know about that, you know, are not really known here? And he said, well, yeah, there's this band cameo, I don't understand why they aren't huge here. Yeah. And the simple reason for that is that they'd put out about eight albums that Phonogram had never released in England. Right. And when I first saw them, I then went to see them in 84 at Hammerson Podium, which was a Sensational gig. Cameo always, they were the anti Springsteen. They always played much too short. Mm-hmm. 82 minutes was their limit. Yeah. So they left people wanting more. But in this case, the audience was 90% black, had been reading interviews with them in Blues and Soul for years, where they promised to come over and never did. Mm-hmm. So there was a fantastic sort of clash like energy in the room, and Cameo were absolutely sensational. Yeah but they just weren't known here at yeah. all I mean, in the wider thing. In
0: the piece you mentioned that Phonogram won't release their album in this country, and, yeah. and you know, they're selling out the Hammersmith Odeon. and they're selling out tours yeah. around, around the UK.
1: Well, they yes, yeah, Single Life, which came yeah. after my article, was the first one Phonogram put out, and I, yeah. Phonogram knew they were going to do that, and I'm mm. not saying that was my but um <laughs> but well it had been with the red hot chili peppers that emi it was the third album came out because of things i'd written in the nme well, and the yeah. emi had had discussions about it having not put the first two out how oh, interesting but no the cameo one they'd realized after she's strange oh well we better start doing this yeah also because as you say it was more interesting they'd sounded a lot like a earth wind and fire p-funk knockoff on early albums sure larry blackman's first group which he was in with Gwen Guthrie, I think, was called the New York City Players, you yeah. know, named after the Ohio Players. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, they'd just become much more, in experiments with texture, had become much more interesting in rhythms, and they had keyboards that sounded like dogs and things that dropped away and juddery weird things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, a bit like the Gang yeah. of Four. You'd sometimes hear things going on and think, ooh, what, what are they They were really
0: weird at times, for sure. Yeah. I mean, the story, I mean, they're huge word up. They'd moved to Atlanta by that time, hadn't they? They're, that's where yeah. they're based... I was... In fact, when we, my band went to Muscle Shoals to record, we flew via Atlanta Airport. And Atlanta Airport has got four identical terminals on a square. And you go from one terminal to the next, and the same people eating the same food at the same bars in all four terminals. And I was sitting with my Walkman headphones on, listening to the, the Word Up album, and I suddenly realised the aesthetic was as much about Atlanta Airport as anything. I mean, it, <laughs> it, it was extraordinary. It was the most... Sort of automated yeah. place I'd ever been to, and like I can just see them going in and out of the airport all the time, and just like the, the idea for that sound sort of emerging. Yeah. That was a fantastic. Yeah. very
1: rapidly after that, didn't they? Well I? they yeah, I think they just ran out of steam in the sense that they weren't changing anymore. They weren't getting better. Yeah yeah. And they'd had they'd made some I mean I really loved the early albums actually more than the more successful mm-hmm. ones. But they'd got to a point where they'd sort of got everyone excited and then it just sort of it was diminishing returns. Yeah. But the funny thing also about Larry Blackman, I mean that interview that you're running which was in 85 done at the Mayflower hotel in New York. That was my first trip to America. And I'd gone there to go to Washington, D.C. with German TV and film The Go-Go Band. Yeah. Had the most amazing five days and nights of sleepless fun in in Washington, (laughs) D.C. And I was burbling about this to Larry Blackman, who was completely smitten by the idea that I'd come because he knew of the go-go bands but he didn't know anyone else did (laughs) because it didn't travel in America that's right when I was in DC there was a black journalist from Baltimore reviewing the scene Mm -hmm. for whom it was all entirely new Mm -hmm. and the idea that people coming over from Europe who all knew about it was quite odd yes and when I saw I went to see cameo Nottingham Rock City when they played on the single life tour Mm. When I went backstage to see them, Larry Blackman immediately called me in and said to the band, this is the bloke. He went all the way to America just to see go-go bands. And sort of, I mean, I think I'd mean, tacked him on as an afterthought, to be honest, on my trip. I'm going to America. They're about to put out an album. I've got to do this.
0: No, it's, it's it's fantastic. I mean, it may be the first piece of writing in the National Music Press on Cameo. I mean, possibly.
1: Pos, pos, well, possibly. yeah, well, my uh, interview your, thing, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah.
0: And then, of course, Zap, Roger Troutman... You told me some fantastic stories about the stuff that you didn't tape in the interview.
1: Yeah. <laughs> well, I can tell you a bit about that, though. I think for reasons of decency, yeah. I, I really shouldn't go into too much detail. Now, that was an extraordinary interview because I was very much into sort of P-funky things yeah, yeah, in the yeah. 80s and Zap and Trap and obviously an offshoot of all that. And so uh, the first opportunity I wanted to interview him, and they'd come over and played Hammersmith and stuff. And so I interviewed him at Warner Brothers, in, which in those days was in the middle of Soho, And it was his last interview of the day. And it was a fine interview, all all going well. But I never used to ask people in those days, like, well, what's the most disgusting thing you've ever done? Or what's your weirdest perversion? Because apart from the fact it wasn't my main focus, I just assumed they would never answer. Why would they be so stupid? was, Roger, (laughs) the minute the interview was over and I'd switched off my tape recorder just went into this incredible, and by way of small talk, incredible stream of filth about his personal habits. <laughs> and oh, all sexual and involving women and groupies and a few slightly unhygienic ideas. But he... Um, <laughs> he, And, you know, it, it must be said that he, like most rockers uh, from the 70s, his behaviour would not pass muster no. in the Me Too era. Yes, But um, he was absolutely explicit about all this stuff in a way Jeez. that was just... Draw, absolutely jaw-dropping. He also told me what he wanted to do the Queen, which was also unspeakable, <laughs> if he met her. And um, it, was just, it was just quite incredible. And then he said to me, he turned to me, he said, and, and I suppose you probably have orgies in your car, don't you? And I said to him, well, it's a bit hard on a bus pass. He didn't really, <laughs> didn't really follow what I was saying. The idea I didn't have a car couldn't really compute because yeah. he had a limo for him. And it all ended... Slightly weirdly, when the woman from Warner Brothers Press came in and told him that his black cab was there. And there was a very tense moment when it became clear that he thought he'd been given some kind of racially segregated taxi. <laughs> and uh, when well, that was smoothed out, all was good. I thought initially it's because he was expecting a limo, and then yeah. it became clear, actually, no, he thinks he's been put in something for...
2: Brilliant, brilliant, brilliant stuff. The interesting thing about all of that filth is that it's so at odds with his public persona, oh, which is uh, what you... You actually you yeah. mentioned this in the piece. You're, you're I talking. did
1: briefly mention that he'd portrayed himself privately as a sexual deviant, but actually his public <laughs> persona was to be a hero to kids. Yeah. And he put his money where his mouth was. They'd made amazing improvements to Dayton, Ohio, where yeah, they lived. Built
2: loads of homes. Built hundreds
1: of homes, which they gave back to the people who they'd moved out at the same rent, and they were just improving things and constantly giving back to the community. And above all, they hadn't left Dayton, which I imagine must be quite tempting. Yeah. Yeah. And
0: then, of course, the, the tragedy is he was shot
1: by his own brother. That, Larry, yeah, that was in 1999. Yeah. And I remember at the time reading some kind of explanation for that, which just, I've, A, I've forgotten it, B, it made no sense anyway. I presume it was some grievance, some misunderstanding, mm-hmm. but it's, it's horrible because his brother then shot himself. Yes, I mean, he right. killed Roger and then turned the gun on yeah. himself which was just a horrible yeah. end to things. No, no, that,
0: that's pretty sad. Interesting, Dayton and Ohio... I mean, you could say that Ohio is the funk state oh, yeah. of America. You lose I would, that
1: in the I, piece. Yes, I've, I've always thought there's something in the water in Ohio. I yeah. mean, the... Because it's not just... I mean, Dayton has at least ten good funk bands, but if you include it, a few other places. Yeah. I mean, let's just think, There's from Ohio, there's the Isley Brothers, the OJs, Bootsy's Rubber Band, Zap, Dayton, the Sun, players. the Ohio Players, Lakeside... It's amazing. And, I mean, there's Phase O, Levert, the deal, it goes on.
0: I have a theory. My, my theory is that King Records are based in Ohio, yeah, in Cleveland. Right. And James Brown recorded for King. Right. And I think, therefore, on their doorstep was a man doing this stuff. And I, I, yeah. a bit of me thinks that King Records' presence in, in Cleveland... is what sort of kicked off. Interesting.
1: Interesting. But you know Cleveland also, I was told years later, Cleveland was the model for the city, the rural town in Footloose. You know the film where they're not allowed to dance? And (laughs) apparently Cleveland was just like horrible. And there was a concert in the late 80s where New Edition played there. You know, the Candy Girl, Mm. Bubblegum band. And they were, the kids They weren't allowed to stand or dance during the concert, and kids, of course, were getting excited Mm -hmm. and standing up. And security were just beating small children through this Uh, concert. It's it's
0: fantastic. I'm pretty sure I rather love that.
1: (laughs) (laughs) What that they were beating (laughs) Um,
0: something as kids. I used to worship an American guitarist who had a band in England in the '70s, sort of pub rock band called Rugulator. A guy called Danny Adler. Oh yeah, and he's from Cleveland, and he remembers. Bootsy and, no. and Catfish, and, you know, because he used to hang around the King Studios, and they'd be in there recording yeah. the James Brown and jamming in all the clubs and all that. So there was that scene right yeah. then and there. It's, it's interesting a- as well that because
2: Roger Troutman in the in the interview. Talks about struggling to get recognised as a guitar player. He says, yeah. "I found it hard to be noticed as a good guitarist. I play guitar better than I do anything, but all the hits have been with the talk box. I'm not a great yeah. singer. I'm even less of a great synth programmer. But it was my way of being unusual. So I think it's interesting that, yeah, like, because yeah. he was always following. You mentioned he was always following Sugarfoot around, and yeah. uh, just that again, those guitar players really." <laughs> I think also in a... In Underpin a, that scene. Yeah, in yeah, a, a funk band, it's
1: slightly difficult. I mean, there, there are obviously some fancy people like Sugarfoot who are a bit Hendrixy at times and have really weird guitar yeah, stuff. Eddie Hazel. But Eddie Hazel, obviously, Funkadelic yes. allows them full reign. But I remember going when I was going to see the Go-Go bands, mm-hmm. going to see EU, Experience mm-hmm. Unlimited, who were, who were the most fabulous band. Mm-hmm. And we turned up at the soundcheck, and from outside, I thought Van Halen were playing. It was that loud and then the the guitarist tino in, in the evening is doing sort of clip loops yep. behind the band and that's his job yeah, yeah. so there's not often the, the sort of showy guitar hero stuff that you get in rock bands is is kind of suppressed by the needs of the dance floor for yeah. certain
0: can you utilize a certain amount
1: of showy yeah. guitar oh, S- they, certainly round word up some they had priests. an amazing guitarist called charlie singleton mm-hmm. who at the ham- at the first two gigs they played at the venue in hammersmith early in 84 he was there and was the star of the show, so much so that he then quit the band. Went off on a solo career, which then flopped completely, and years later he came back and had a much more muted presence with him. But I thought I was sort of watching a mini Hendrix at Hammersmith. Really? I mean, it was, it was exciting right. stuff, yeah. With that, they were part of the whole sort of P-Funk universe. And one of the weird bits in in that point of the 80s was how much when you were following those groups you had to get personally in touch with them and not much went over the record companies. They weren't promoted that much here. And I was looking at an old address book I had from the 80s the other day for no particular reason and was just completely amazed to see all the phone numbers and things I had in there. And I had like Bootsy's mum is in there. (laughs) you know someone someone's dentist is in i mean the way you got to these people and george clinton i mean i was associated a lot with Mm pfung actually in practice i did not write as much about pfung as people think i did but george clinton called me regularly on the phone he rang me once from a pay phone from heathrow airport and he was keeping he was sort of keeping a few people informed but he was doing his own press officer's work and i i've ended up (laughs) back in his place in la and stuff and you know, we hung out much more than you would know from the thing. But there was this personal contact, which yeah. was possible when the media was much smaller. Now the media is so dauntingly large yeah. that that I think that everyone just felt palms yeah. it off on their PR people to keep people away. Uh, absolutely. But I love it. Boots' mum. Boots' mum. I mean, I'm, I haven't tried ringing it because I'm sure she's dead now and doesn't want to hear from me. But, I mean, that, <laughs> there's a whole string of extraordinary phone numbers that, in there. And that's
0: fabulous. That's great. really great. Yeah. The other thing that you're sort of quite noted for is you were one of the first people to write about house music, Chicago house music. I remember you expressing some sort of discontent that a certain journalist for the face got the sort of credit when you'd been pretty much the first to, uh, to, 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 to no? No, no, <laughs> I, had,
1: I had a certain discontent that a certain journalist at the NME ah. went in to see Ian Pye and after we'd had a staff meeting where right. I pitched house in, in early 86. Yeah. And it all been decided this was a brilliant idea, I was going to go and do it, that someone then walked in and told Ian Empire that they were on staff and they should do it and took it off me, ah. which was when I walked over the road to ID and said they'd been asking me to write yeah. for them and I thought, well, OK, this is...
0: No, I mean, the ID piece is fantastic. You, so you went to Chicago, you met the Ron yeah.
1: Hardys of this world. Well, you? it was intriguing. I, met, I went to Chicago. I had London Records, who were about to start releasing house, mm-hmm paid my airfare, but I had nothing else. I had no photographers, no hotel, no anything. In fact, I got stopped at Chicago Airport for hours of interviews because I'd stupidly said, oh, I'll find somewhere to stay when I get there, which is, uh, you learn never, ever, Sheraton Main Street, they don't even care, just go. You tell them the truth. And Anyway, I finally got someone, a record company guy, to vouch for me. And After about three or four hours of interview at O'Hare, I got in and I stayed at the YMCA and took all the pictures myself and it was great fun. But there was a lot of detective work back then. And I found J.M. Silk. No one knew where they were. They yeah. were considered to be sort of a lost group mm-hmm. because of disputes with their record company. I found them. I found, you know, and through Frankie Knuckles, who I met up with, then got sort of linked to all sorts of people. I later stayed with him a few times and he put me on to Derek May after I'd heard of him in Rose Records before techno had even been named. Yes. Yeah. It was a great time going what around and was I've,
0: Rose Records, the store, which didn't have anything to play the music on, and they had written descriptions.
1: No, they played... I, I, well, I couldn't swear to, but I'm sure the guy played... There was a guy called Andre in Rose Records, and I was fumbling through all the house yeah. stuff going, is there anything good here? And he said, well, oh, this is the house sound of Detroit, you'll like this. Yeah. And played me nude foso, and Be, I thought...
0: Because we've got an interview with Sanderson where he says that he would go to Chicago, from Detroit, right. to this record store, run by these two gay guys, and there was no turntables, nothing to play anything on, but written descriptions of the records on the sleeves, and he'd buy records on the basis of these written descriptions. Right. Which is kind of fantastic. That is, yes, <laughs> you know? Well, it
1: requires a certain skill of description on the part of the people who work there, Abso- it?
0: Absolutely. But, I mean, it must have been really exciting going yeah. there at that
1: time. And Oh, it was fantastic. And what was interesting is that Frankie... Knuckles did not, at that point, because of a dispute, have a club going. Mm-hmm. So he took me down to Ron Hardy's music box, which was fantastic. I mean, it was really... they didn't. The weirdest thing about the music box is this is like June 86. Yeah, yeah. Ron Hardy didn't play a single record from the 1980s, apart from, rather weirdly, Maureen by Sade. All of it was like 70s disco that he was treating yeah. and doing stuff yeah. with and... Uh, but it was so exciting. And uh, when I got there, of course, there was no alcohol at all. But you mm. come from England, you think, well, how are they making any money here? And why, why is this doesn't work, surely? And they were handing out free soft drinks. And someone said, well, here, you know, cream soda, put a bit of this in it. And, uh, and you're off. And you're off. And, it was, <laughs> and uh, they were right.
2: You're saying We've got the original ID piece on site. But this week, I also added oh, a right. piece that you wrote for Sabotage Times, when you sort of Recalled, reminisced about this trip, and in that recollection, disarmingly, neither of their clubs served alcohol, the very raison d'etre for nightclubs in Europe, but there were other compensations. Let's just say that sachets of powder don't taste quite so bad in cream soda, so there you go. (laughs) That is
1: entirely right. And the powder was MDA rather than MDMA, which is a little bit rougher, and I remember the next day going down to the south side of Chicago to a gospel festival in dazzling sunlight... Watching, and they brought on Tommy Dorsey, who invented the term gospel to open the festival. But he was so ill. You
0: saw Thomas A. Dorsey.
1: He came in an ambulance. They propped him up for about three minutes to open the festival then put him back down and <laughs> took him off in the ambulance.
0: This is the man who wrote Precious
1: Lord Yeah, to, you know,
0: take my hand. But uh, they
1: had they had all these amazing bands playing, but I was sort of squinting and, and slightly
0: <laughs> on the come <laughs> uh, down. The other thing, Thomas Dorsey, of course, was a blues player, Georgia Tom. Yeah. And he was one of the few who straddled in the 20s and 30s, straddled that, that divide. It's quite but, the uh, contrast. Do, right? I do, I <laughs> yeah, uh, uh, one, one of their songs was It's tight Like That, I believe. This is, it was one of the Georgia Tom <laughs> songs. So this triggered your interest in brought in in, in rave generally, and you became and, um, absolutely,
1: and you became something of a rave. Well, I have been. I had been. I mean, it was weird because I, when I listened to when I listened to journalists talking now on social media and everything, mm. they constantly talking about do you. Remember those great days we went down the pub and stuff? Yeah, I have not ever been to the pub with anyone from any magazine I've written to. <laughs> I just wasn't in that circle. I yeah, saw yeah. people in the office. I saw them at gigs. I saw sure. them and stuff. But from the beginning of the eighties, I discovered London nightlife for myself in eighty one, eighty two. And I'd just been clubbing throughout. And that of course was a lot of rare groove and other yeah. things and and it changed amazingly. I mean, that was interesting. I was mm-hmm. when I was going to clubs like the Mug Club uh, Fubits and the Dirt Box and the Warehouse Af- and all those
0: clubs. Af- Africa Centre and the... Yeah, yeah Africa
1: yeah. Centre, all that stuff. But, you know, people would... You'd get, at the Mud Club particularly, an incredible variety of music, from Jackie Wilson and old rockabilly to the latest New York Sounds via the Bee Gees. And, I mean, everything mm-hmm. under the sun. And then house records when they started coming yeah. in. In early 86, music is the key and things were... And when I went to Washington in 85, the Go Go Bands, their premises, they found the exact beat everyone in Washington likes, and they're never changing. Yeah. And the songs change, but they don't stop between songs so you don't clear the dance floor. Yeah. And that beat goes all night. And that seemed like a quite odd idea. Then you get to house music and by eighty-eight, eighty-nine, everything is the same BPM, yes. and all the clubs are, the music changes, but there's one beat all yeah, night. Yeah. So it was an idea whose whose time had come. Because
0: I mean, the third piece we're running uh, free on Rock's Back Pages because your hilarious account of going in search of the Sunrise Three Warehouse Rave.
1: Yeah, that was <laughs> well, that was a fantastic. That was the moment in a sense because it was October eighty-eight and. People, I mean, there's some odd things. Like At the moment, there's an exhibition at the Saatchi Gallery about the, the anniversary of the Summer of Love in 89. And the second Summer of Love was not in 1989. It was in 88. Yeah. February to October 88. 89 was lovely, but it wasn't the second Summer of Love. And that was an absolutely amazing time. I mean, it really was extraordinary. Because the police didn't bother anyone mm. throughout summer. They quite liked it. Mm-hmm. You know, they get more trouble at a mile-end pub on a Friday night than they ever got at raves. And it wasn't until after sort of silly season reports from The Sun and everyone who kept provoking them. And, I mean, after that Sunrise thing, The Sun wrote what was it, disco, cops flee disco kids or whatever. I mean, some absolute bollocks. They haven't fled anyone. (laughs) They had realised there was nothing really officially wrong and just kind of left rather than cause trouble. But, you know, they were always being poked about, why don't you do something about this? Why don't you do something? And the police very reluctantly did clamp down, but also when the weather got worse. Yes. You know, they waited till then. (laughs) But it had been an amazing, had been a really amazing experience, acidity. It was different to the earlier house clubs. Mm -hmm. And there was a lot of acid and ecstasy going around. And for me, growing up the age I am, I was constantly being told by people, you missed the 60s. Mm-hmm. And, you know, oh, you missed the 60s, you'll never see it again. And, you know, you never will. But that was that sort of six months for me was the 60s because there was a real belief, equally disillusioned in the end that things were changing, that mm-hmm. the whole world was changing and society was changing, and, you know, football hooliganism stopped. Yeah. And, you know, I was going to raise where West Ham thugs with Rottweilers were running the thing, yeah. and they were lovely to everyone. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was really... Well,
0: ecstasy will do that to you. Yeah. It tends to make one a much more amenable personality. Yeah. The Italian 90 famously was, yeah. like, the ecstasy World Cup, where yeah. the, the fearsome English football fans were yeah. just... Well, Sweethearts, mostly. Absolutely. You
1: know? <laughs> well, I mean, it did only for me last that summer, because although I carried yeah. on clubbing long after that, yeah, yeah. that sense that the whole world was going to change did not come to pass, and you'd sort of realised it by the next year, and also the drug dealers had got more professional, and the whole thing felt less idealistic. Yeah. But it was nice to have experienced yeah. it, and everyone just stopped caring. You know, I used to go to the Wag Club and all these places before, and still did. <laughs> but there was, you know, that London fashion thing going on, and during 88, no-one give a shit what anyone looked like. You'd be in weird suburban mm-hmm. places with people you would never have associated with before and everyone was loving each other. It was just great. I
0: I missed out on it completely, even though things like Acid House kind of happened right under my nose, T-Coy Cremio... Yeah. It was the second release on Deconstruction after my band's single <laughs> was the first release on Deconstruction. And Mike Pickering would be sat in the corner of my manager's office, kind of with a fat joint in his hand, you know. But no-one no one gave me a pill or took me to a club, you know. And it took another ten years for me yeah. to actually sort of
1: really... You made up for it later, I, I did make up for yes. it <laughs> <laughs> yes. I've always thought of you as my model of growing old disgracefully. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Thank you, well, Simon. The other three items aside from the the illustrious Simon Witter's pieces are a special on the Pixies. Simon Reynolds interviews the Pixies in 88. Mark Kemp for auction discusses Bowie and other issues with Black Francis and Piles. And actually, I thought one of the most interesting pieces was guitarist Joey Santiago on how he joined the band and how he basically left the band or the band left him. Um, The Pixies, I mean... My nephew, as a teenager, used to listen to the Pixies quite a lot. And so I'd sort of make an effort to sort of try and like them without really <laughs> terribly succeeding. Not your kind of thing, Simon, really, is it?
1: Well, no. Well, i tell you, first of all, Kim Deal of the Pixies yes. is from Dayton, Ohio. Ah! So there you go. But no, <laughs> and, she, that's... and
0: she used to play in a funk band. Right. Her very first band was basically an R and B band. Yeah. Really? Yes.
1: And then but went to, on to pictures. Interesting. But to answer your question, now I, I came into the eighties listening to all sorts of stuff, including a lot of sort of underground American post-punk and yeah, other yeah. things. But my head was really going towards funk after eighty one, eighty two yeah. and other things, and and I, I did all sorts of other music in the background, speed metal and God knows what yeah, I was yeah. writing about. But I got less and less interested in rock and there were all these this will sort of upset some people because it's the groups that that my fellow critics absolutely adored Mm -hmm. in that thing but sonic youth the pixies swans Jim fetus jesus and mary chain all those things i'd made attempts to like them and just didn't get it at all yeah i did have a soft spot
0: jesus mary chain because the
1: the feedback probably yeah Yeah. actually
0: and also just i did like this the way there would be this very melodic component over a wall of Howling racket, yeah. um, that, that kind of work. Oh, I'm not saying they're all the same but, at no, all, I mean, but they're just. That's, I wasn't
1: feeling it at exactly. that time, and I, I've not. Our um,
0: paths in the '80s were almost identical. I mean, because I never really got punk. I got the idea of why punk had to happen, but never as a sound. I never liked it, and so by '78, '79, '80, I'm sort of plunging into black music, right. and I found post-punk, even when it was black influenced, was a bit duh, It's all a bit miserable. So. Then bands like Defunct or no. James Blood Ormond would come over and it's like, oh... This is something you know, and then that led me almost more straight yeah. back into mainstream.
1: But the, weird, I mean, at that time there was so much stuff going on after yeah. after punk when that had sort of run its course, mm-hmm. and other things were happening. That while well, I was listening to post punk and enjoying it, but at the same time, you know, I was into the mod revival, then the rockabilly revival, and psychabilly sure. Then this, there were always about four different things yeah, going yeah, yeah, on. Yeah, yeah. So you didn't just have post punk doing which was in itself quite yeah. fun. No no,
0: no, 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 that's absolutely
2: right. We listened to a bit some Pixies yesterday yeah. to sort of educate ourselves because I. I haven't spent a lot of time listening to them either. Or any time. Oh, there'll be people out there tutting. <laughs> I know, I know, I know. It's, it's tough, but I've got better things to do. No, it, I think actually, for a band of that sound, I quite liked it. As far as, you know, then it's not just a rubbish tip of noise. They're, yeah. they're, they're pretty good at the first, what they're doing. The in terms first album of,
0: I played yesterday in the office Surfer Rosa, which is, I think, their second or well, their first official complete album. The, 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 they've been signed oddly to an English label, 4AD and Santa Rosa had a certain sort of wild, mad charm. They, they yeah. talked about that a lot in the Simon Reynolds interview and about how it's produced and so on and so forth. And then we played a couple of tracks each from the subsequent albums and they became straighter and straighter.
2: And less Unless, interesting. interesting. As well as yeah, but I mean that that album that you did play the first one. I think you know I'd quite happily mosh to that. Like that, it was you know I, I imagine it was quite a good live it's experience.
0: An, I can't imagine Jasper moshing. It's, just, it's, not, not, it's not, sort of not the come to the gig sometime and, and then, uh, you know, we can mosh together, Mark. You we can. can't imagine you moshing, but well, I think that's probably dealt with the Pixies
1: as quickly. Um, um, I'm sure re- listeners will probably not feel the same who like the Pixies. <laughs> <but>, <laughs>
0: Better move on. Briefly mention the death of Daniel Johnston. I'll ask my two colleagues here, do any of you know anything about Daniel Johnston? Well, we spent about half an hour listening
2: to his music this morning in the office, and that is the
0: extent of the listening I've done to Daniel Johnston. I, I mean, I think he's he's the kind of outsider artist that American indie people particularly. That appreciate. seems to be
2: the, that's a sense I get from. I mean, everyone seems to be writing about the fact that Kurt Cobain yeah. was sort of inspired by
0: his writing, songwriting. Mm-hmm. So that would be the kind of. Yeah. I thing mean, there, that you'd there is def- Kurt Cobain. To there is this kind of by. school of American outsider artists, like Vic Chestnut's another one. And I mean, what is you know, Daniel Johnston? he had a fairly tortured life. I mean, he, he died from ill health, I believe, as a heart attack. He had once, when flying with his father in a, as a single-engine plane, pulled the keys out of the ignition and thrown them out of the window, which clearly shuts the engine down. And his father managed to crash successfully enough that they survived it. You Correct. Know? And he was reckoned to be schizophrenic, and so on and so forth. He had course. a few mental health yeah. issues, I think. And we're running
2: a free piece. Chris Campion, two thousand and three, yeah. goes to interview him, and it's quite clear that he has some issues with people and how much care. His father gives him and basically sort of managing his life for yeah his whole life essentially, yeah, and obviously kind of a troubled but deeply artistic yeah guy
0: you see I mean the, the, on my Facebook feed this morning, I mean my English Facebook friends. Who like him mostly refer to the fact that he Bowie's meltdown. He played that, and I think that's maybe one of the few times he ever came over to this country. Mm. And and people said he was very affecting. I have to say it's not my kind of thing. No, it's not my kind of music. But one or two of the tracks you played did have a nice sort of uh,
2: a heart to them. Mm. You can definitely you can definitely yeah. tell.
3: Your picture is still.
0: So, let's talk about the audio for this week. Let's. Which I think is pretty riveting. It's Tony Sherman interviewing Robbie Robertson, specifically in this bit, about his early days. when is pre-the band. Pre-the band. The the, the band which became the band were Ronnie Hawkins Hawks. Yeah. Ronnie Hawkins was a second division Arkansas rockabilly rock and roll guy. But he put this band together of kids, basically. (laughs) Robbie Robertson is... 15 i think when he joins the band mm-hmm. and it's it's very interesting he talks about the terrible gigs they're having to play fitting into the southern world because ronnie hawkins is based in arkansas even though most of the band are canadian with the exception of Van helm the drummer who's a, a local boy you found these things you really enjoyed the story about yeah he's, he's, underage. Under, he's
2: underage he's like 16 when he starts mm. playing in clubs and he can't he talks in the interview about how he wasn't obviously wasn't allowed to be, should have been 21. And yeah, they, were yeah. all, they were all underage, but he was the youngest by a, by a chunk. And how whenever the, the sort of licence inspector came, yeah. the, the club owners would have to get him drunk and possibly laid in order to prevent yeah. him from
1: writing up the club for letting well, underage nice, musicians play. There's a nice one where story nice, he's telling Tony Sherman as well, this kid was coming to see me standing in front of the stage and Tony says, yeah, he was about the same age as you. <laughs> <laughs> but my, my favourite, because I, obviously I have listened to yeah, this because yeah. I, I love the band... I like the bit where Tony Sherman has got a slight obsession about Southern girls, I think. And he keeps, <laughs> he keeps probing and probing and probing about Robbie Robertson's sex life on the road or whatever, yeah, his yeah. romantic affairs and stuff. And what was interesting is to hear how... Because you think of the band as this kind of really authentic, rootsy Americana, mm-hmm. blah, 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 with a palette of endless strings-free sex and stuff. But actually, when they're in the Hawks, they're under exactly the same strict rules yeah. that any Louis Walsh boy band would be under. They're not allowed to have girlfriends. They're not allowed to have any kind of relationships. We
0: are, in Garth- fact, going to play a clip about
1: exactly that at the end of this podcast. Garth Hudson gets almost thrown out of the band for having a relationship... And Robbie Robertson explains at one point how you couldn't even, if you really liked someone who found an emotional connection, it was really difficult even to see them twice. Yeah. Because the rest of the band would go, what are you doing, man? You know, uh,
0: so. Also, how Ronnie Hawkins really disapproves of... Robbie reading books. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's a it was the it was idea of the well.
1: band as a boy band in, in terms of their sexual rule book that it, it, was it, 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 you have to stay available. It's that old chestnut it, for all pop stars. It, it is, you have to appear available. It, it is
0: extraordinary. I mean, the other thing is that he's obviously he remembers very fondly his bandmates who, at this point in 1991, despised Robbie. I mean, he talks yeah. very fondly of Levin Helms, the guy who basically took him under his wing and yeah. you know, taught him everything he knew about Who's him on the road. Who's suing him by that who point, was, I, think, yeah. I think so. Yeah. And he talks about the genius of Garth Hudson towards the end of it, which is you know, really a really great bit. We're going to play a clip now, which is they bumped into Sonny Boy Williamson, I guess, in Helena, Arkansas. Sonny Boy Williamson II, Rice Miller, who had just been to Europe, had recorded with the Yardbirds and done all kinds of stuff like that and there he was, and they go to get some ribs and get some barbecue, and they get rousted by the cops, and it's just a pretty, you know, You think apparently in the clip you hear, like, Leaven says, this man is this great musician, and the cops say, oh, you don't care, you white boys, get out, you know. Then
3: we were we played for a while and we got hungry and we decided we were going to go down yeah. and get some what they called nigger town yeah. <laughs> and get some barbecue yeah. and we went down there and we went and we, we got some barbecue at this place and we were just having the time of our lives and all of a sudden the police pulled up we were sitting in this restaurant and all of a sudden these two like patrol cars come zooming up with lights flashing in front of the places, like they come like, hurrying up, stop her, (sighs) the door's open, and these guys get up real slowly, you know, and adjust their pants and everything, and kind of (laughs) walk into the place real slowly, you know, and, and they're like, well, my, my, you know, what have we here? You know, so Levon just said, this be cool. he said, hi, I'm my name's Levon Helm, you know, I'm, I live in Marble, blah, 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 my daddy's Diamond Helm, you know, was the sheriff up there, and my Uncle Pudge is the blah, 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 and he, they said, well, I guess your Uncle Pudge would be really proud of you down here in Niggertown, eating with a bunch of goddamn niggers, now, wouldn't he? And we were like, Whoa, you know, and he said, hey, listen, it's just, Good barbecue, you know, good barbecue is about good barbecue. You know, we were you know, Levan was doing a, doing it on the guy. He was pulling out every charm stop he could, and there was no budget. And finally they said he said, Well, here's what we're gonna do. You boys are gonna go out there and get in that nice shiny car of yours and you're from around here, so you know the quickest motherfucking way out of this town. So you'll just go ahead and use it. Mm. You know? And we just don't want to see you no more here. And Leibon is finally like, well, God damn it, you know? Do you know who this gentleman is? This band is famous, the whole fucking world. Well, this is the legendary Sonny Boy Williamson. We're down here musically... You know, because he is a legend and it's an honor to be in his presence, you know. And this cop was just looking around and saying, So, as I was saying, this nice shiny car out here, while it's still shiny, still out here, you better, you know, need my words. And, and, and it just, you could see there was nothing you could say. And if he had taken it the next step, yeah. They might have just taken us and beat the shit up of us. We, we didn't know. You got to help me. I can't do it all by myself. You got to help me, baby. I can't do it all by myself.
0: It's just pretty riveting stuff. I actually love the way he tells the story. I mean, the bit about the cops coming out, adjusting their pants. and He really paints a picture. Really, sure. He really does paint, paint a picture. It's a great. You like the band. So. I do.
1: I love them. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. It's a weird one. Like like Little Feet, they're one of those bands that everyone I know loves, mm-hmm. and yet, on a in a mainstream sense, they're not that big. Right? No. I mean, no. they're they're still underground. Not not as underground in terms of sale as the Velvet Underground mm-hmm. used to be, literally. Sure. But they in popularity, they're way down the ladder, and yet yeah. everyone I know who loves music just thinks they're
0: amazing. Uh, absolutely. I mean, after leaving Ronnie. The Hawks carried on as the Hawks, basically playing the kind of Canadian and East Coast American club circuit. They get picked up by Bob Dylan just after he'd gone electric. Yeah. And, of course, the famous tour of 1965, where they're booed everywhere they play. Yeah. Leevin leaves the band briefly, so when they come over to this country, they've got a different drummer. Yeah. He's just sick of playing, crowds booing them. You know, so, so they had this reputation. And then their first album, Big Pink was a kind of revelation to a whole generation of musicians. The likes of Eric Clapton and people suddenly thought long guitar solos aren't the thing anymore. Well, let's
1: strip it down. Let's make,
0: you know, almost folksy sort of...
1: But it was also the idea that rock had been very urban. Yes. And suddenly, whoa, these people are like out in the country and they're loving it. And and people started seeing that there was a a rural, folky thing you could be doing as well. Uh,
0: Absolutely. Their second album, I think is one of the greatest albums Ever made the um, second
1: one is better than the famous oh yeah. first one, definitely. Oh yeah! I also really like Rock of Ages, the live album yes. where they've got Alan Toussaint arranging all the horns, yes, which just works yeah. fabulous. There's a great
0: story about that: is that Alan Toussaint had sent them the, horn, the arrangements and they'd got lost, so he had to go up to Woodstock to kind of basically write them on the spot before rehearsals, yeah. and he's in this cabin. And it's snowing outside, and he'd hardly seen snow. You know, a man from New Orleans, you don't get a lot of snow in New Orleans, you know. And he completely rewrote the parts based on the atmosphere of being there. But what it also happened was that he was basing it on a cassette of the songs which was running at slightly the wrong speed. So he had written them all in one key, when, in fact, the band played them basically one note out. They'd hired all these really high-class New York session players... Shady sort of guys to, to, to do parts, and they kind of they came in and it's like, oh, this is a white rock band, you know, you know, you, these guys aren't going to be up too much. Turned out that every song was one step out, and the band said, don't worry, we'll just, and they they just the whole band moved a step up, and that, at this point, these session guys thought, Jesus, these guys can really play because you know, it's really hard to do on fixed picture instruments like keyboards and so, yeah, on and so forth. Yeah. So, you know, Rock of Ages is a fabulous record. It is. Uh, you know, if I'm going to recommend anything to anyone. Second album, Rock of Ages. Yep. That, that'll, that'll do it.
1: It's a, it's a good start.
0: <laughs> Shall we yeah. move on to the archive section? Mark, what have you found? Well, for what us have I then? found? An amusing little interview with Heinz by June Harris from Disc in 1963. Heinz was a member of the, the Tornadoes who had the big hit, Telstar. Was a Joe Meek protege, which I think probably involved quite a lot of things, <laughs> which we won't go into. And he left the Tornadoes with the idea that he's going to have some glowing career. And it actually, kind of rather Fritz, literally. I mean, he was German, wasn't he? Heinz Bert, I think, yeah. Had his unlikely blonde
1: hair. Very, very peculiar. It's like it was a Warhol wig almost. Like yeah, it, yes.
0: Yeah. Anyway, apparently he and Joe Meek had bought a boat together. And he was going on a, a two week holiday to France. And he gets to France, rings up Joe Meek, and Joe Meek says, you've got to come back straight away because your records are here. I don't think it was. So Heinz says, Even if you haven't got the time to go to France, it's only a short nip over to the Isle of Wight where there's a real swinging scene. <laughs> <laughs> a nice little time capsule from '63. From Muddy's Maker, November 69, this is a really interesting piece. This is an interview with Mark Bolan, still of Tyrannosaurus Rex, but the band are just changing. They're just about to morph into what became T-Rex. Mickey Finn had joined, Steve Peregrine was out, and suddenly he started playing electric guitar, having been like, you know, a, a guy with a pair of bongos and Bolan with an acoustic. He says, the whole thing's heavier now, the rhythm section's much stronger, Mickey's doing more varied things. There's certainly no need to expand in numbers as we're playing so tight. I'm an electric guitar for most of the tracks. While nothing's changed basically, I've experienced a musical growth, Mark opined after due consideration. Well, he'd
2: also experienced a sort of personal growth in the sense that he wanted suddenly to be
0: famous. Yeah, and rich and, and all kinds the of things. Stuff, um, Beard of Stars, it's the last album which was came out under the Tyrannosaurus Rex banner. The, the following album would, would be T-Rex. But So this is kind of... T-Rex Ground Zero, which is just always kind of interesting, kind of catching that moment. Sound 75, Robin Katz interviewing Jackie Wilson. Not many Jackie Wilson interviews around. He had very uneven... You know a lot about Jackie Wilson, don't you?
1: I wouldn't say a lot. I used to listen to his music a lot. Yeah. yeah, He's
0: fabulous, Yeah. yeah. I mean... Apparently, one of the great stage mm. performers. Henri um, well,
1: Petit was one of his. That was on every week in the clubs I used to go yes. to in the mid 80s, next yes. to sort of electro from New York. He was... had an
0: oddly patchy career. It had hits in the 50s, <laughs> hits in the 60s, hits in the 70s, but with long gaps in between each one. Higher and Higher was one of his later hits, which is great, great songs. I have read people talk about him on stage in the same breath as, like, James Brown. I mean, he was that dynamic a performer. Yeah. Apparently, he could drive audiences of young women in American ghetto theatres round the band. We've got a couple of live reviews
2: of his shows that kind of make that that point that he's just this electrifying stage presence. So it's,
0: it's great to go over that. This is interesting. He says, all of a sudden, black was black and white was white. And if you didn't run out and get rid of your process, you're considered to be an Uncle Tom. I mean, he's basically talking about the end of the 60s, when the clear split between black and white music became more more pronounced yeah. and, and uh, Afrocentrism sort of. Yeah, exactly. Came.
1: Black powers beginning, yeah. and you're meant to look natural and not be Absolutely. straightening it like a white man. And he
0: was a real processed guy, there's no yes. doubt
1: about
3: it. Hugh
0: Fielder and Sounds in 79 interviewing the village people. Ah, the village people. <laughs> 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 and it, it's great. I mean, so so this is Glenn Hughes, Village People's Glenn Hughes, saying, the message was, whatever the guy next to you is doing, as long as he's not hurting you, relax. He's having a good time.
1: <laughs> that sounds like a recipe uh, for disaster. Yeah, yeah well,
0: quite. <laughs> They're they, they, they tiptoeing around as the subject of gayness without yeah. sort of being explicit about it. There's a new revival of narcissism in America at the moment. We place emphasis on the individual. That's Brandy Jones talking. Uh, Glenn Hughes says... Camp people may decide that we're camp, but not everyone thinks that. and We refuse to be categorised that easily. You One know.
2: thing I love about the village people is that I i don't know if this is true, I don't care if this is true, but their song, In the Navy, I've heard, was commissioned by the Navy.
1: Which, which <laughs> I mean... <laughs> You know, do was like a shot stupid. on an aircraft carrier, the video, as well, wasn't it? Yeah, was that? It's, this, yeah. it's
2: so unbelievably camp recruitment song for the Navy. Yeah. In the Navy, you can sail the seven seas. <laughs> <laughs> it's, like, it's so, so funny. And I, I love the idea that yeah. the US Navy might actually have done that sort yeah. of almost like but, not realizing. Not realizing. <laughs> so, <I> think, <laughs> so like, oh these 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 people make nice sort of happy songs but about were, the Navy. Yeah. About yeah. the Navy. That's but good. there was a
1: time in the seventies where a lot of people didn't get camp or understand yeah. the signs of it. Yeah. And I remember I worked in the eighties quite a bit on video projects and other things, documentaries with the band Queen. And when Freddie Mercury died, there was this outpouring of people who'd had no idea he was gay. I know. Which, considering, I, I used to live near the Colherne pub and I knew exactly yeah. what he was signifying <laughs> with all his various outfits, which said, you know, screamingly loud, without having to say it, I am gay. Yeah. And no-one was getting that sign. I, mean, I know. Was it, a, it, it was, Not no-one, but most people apparently just didn't see it. I mean, Freddie was probably bi, but, but yeah. No, well, yeah, no, no, he'd no, started no, out he having just... a girlfriend, but he had then become gay. Yeah. yeah, I mean... Mary Austin, who worked at the Bieber shop, was his girlfriend, yeah. and he left her. Everything because they should have been married and she would have got everything anyway. On
0: a sort associated note, Ben Fong Torres interviewing Donna Summer in 1981 and She had become born again. She said, I just lay down on bed one day, stretched my arms out to God and said, God, show me the way. This was, she was kind of distancing herself from her gay audience. And she says, disco made me feel energetic, made me feel like dancing. But people can't dance forever. Besides, I like rock and roll. It wasn't long after that she made some pretty scandalous statements yeah, about mm-hmm. people with AIDS and so on and so forth.
2: She kind of burnt a few bridges there because she'd been this icon, as many female so, singers yeah. do become icons yeah. for that scene. And then she sort of, I don't know, don't know what got into her, really. She just, yeah. I but, think... But also her,
1: her music was so linked to the, yeah, the gay disco scene. I mean, absolutely. Even if she'd never said a word, she all, it was it was an odd face. Didn't she, towards the end, mellow out on all that? Like, many yes. people who get Christianity, yeah. they're very hot for it at first and then get a bit more nuanced yeah. later on. I, I, I think because I, it was a sad thing seeing her being anti gay. That was kind of just didn't make sense yeah, at I, I, all.
0: Absolutely. you know, um, it's interesting that we also got Johnny Cash interviewed by Adam Sweeting in The Garden in eighty nine. And a bunch of artists had done a album of covers of his songs for the Terence Higgins Trust, where the money was going to go. And he says, how can you not support AIDS research if you're a man of God? That's Johnny Cash talking, which is kind of the exact opposite. Exactly. Well,
1: that's looking at the current American political situation, I think it's intriguing that Pete Buttigieg, as they call him, Mm -hmm. is trying to reclaim religion for the Liberals, because yep. there's no reason why, why the Evangelicals all that should be tied to the Republicans. If you listen to the Christian message, it's much more Democrat <laughs> than Republican. I, I mean, mean, it's, 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 it's ridiculous.
0: Episodic. Johnny Cashel says, the more I was on TV and the more I performed with black people or introduced black people, the more I'd hear from the Klan. He says he's got this letter from the Klan framed above his office desk. He says a lot of people like to think of Southerners and country music people as right-wing, redneck, southern bigots. I don't think I'm that. <laughs> he's absolutely right. Stone Temple pilot Scott Whelan interviewed oh, by Christ Michael sake. Azarab and Spinner 95. I mean, I have no time for Stone Temple pilots. So I really have very little time to I mean, for Scott Whelan is just... And, and Such a it, fucking arse. He's a it's cock just, of the first order. Jesus Christ. He, uh, he said, I never masturbated to spin, although PJ Harvey looks pretty amazing on the cover of the maze. Just
1: like, really Was man? anyone expecting you to wank to
0: spin? Well, it's, I mean, it's, uh, uh, is that it's a music mags, man? They'd given him a bad review, and it was, it was an, uh, kind of in the context. He said, I'm in the process of getting clean and bettering myself, trying to grow up as a human being. Two weeks later, he was busted for... Crack and heroin. He mm. was doing very well there. And lastly, just to mention, we got Lucia Brown as our wonderful guest a couple of weeks ago. Here, her obituary of Dusty Spring from '99. I just wanted to mention Burial. I put in a review of Burial's album, oh, yeah.
2: Untrue, which is second album. David Stubbs, who was here last week, mm. reviewing for The Wire in 2008. Untrue feels, well, true in its intimation that things are played out, not just rave culture, as he explained to Mark Fisher in The Wire 286, but popular culture in the very society of the 20th century, now struggling to renew itself with a possible dark age of climate change on the horizon. Interesting that that's in 2008, that, that sort of... Do you like Burial? I do like Beryl. I think he's pretty
0: pretty, do you, uh, pretty excellent. Simon, do you like Beryl? Have, you, have, have they not really crossed your path? Not crossed my path. Really? really? Yeah, yeah.
2: Interesting. Beryl manages to make dark dubstep kind of sound, but with, with a lot of variety and wit and intelligence. It's really well-produced music, and... It is—it's quite industrial sounding. Yeah. I, I don't pretty, love it. I mean, it has been played great.
0: in the rock's pages office quite a lot over the last couple of years, and it's never sort of really perked me out. But, but I mean, Stubbs seems
2: to like it. Yeah. All of this burial conveys in his limited but devastatingly effective sound palette, in which, over a constant industry of dubstep mm-hmm. rhythms, clouds of synth billow with grainy, overwhelming toxicity from the drains, the tenement <laughs> the skies. <laughs> it's a nice bit of writing. Well, it's a
1: lovely bit of writing.
2: Then, 2012, the XX, a band that either of you are familiar with at all?
1: We're too well old. <laughs> I mean, you did describe me earlier as being from the classic era. So, <laughs> and obviously I do listen to new music and I hear things I love, yeah. but I'm now in the blissful position of not being up to date with everything that's happening. Yeah. Which I mean, I look at posters on the tube for festivals with sixty bands playing, and if I recognise eight of them, I am quite pleased. I
2: mean, they were pretty big in like two thousand and twelve. They have this sort of mm-hmm. indie. I've absolutely pop-tronica. heard of them. I just haven't heard them. Sure, so. yeah, it's sort of indie poptronics. Like yeah. it's it's fine. They had a couple of tracks yeah. that were that were pretty big, and this is Luke Turner in the Quietus reviewing track by track their album that I think really sort of pushed them into the mm-hmm. mainstream. In missing one of the tracks, in missing lies another secret to the XX's mainstream success. Yes, that hooves-clopping-on steel beat might be all very London and very now, but there's also something everyman and soaring about the chorus here that's not actually a million miles from Coldplay, the guitar even reflecting the emptiness as epic of U2. The knack that the XX have is still retaining a quiet intimacy rather than sounding like a joyous fart in a Ford Mondeo by a marketing middle manager celebrating a cheeky hundred miles on the M1.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Again, superb, right? Well, we do love Luke. He actually... Worked, Very he fun, worked yeah. briefly with. with I us remember a, that, yeah. A thoroughly good man. He's also written a really interesting book, which I uh, plan to score for my Kindle. Excellent, like excellent. excellent.
2: Anything else? Yeah, just one
0: thing because <laughs> I love
2: Anderson Pack. As far as new musicians who, if you've not listened to Anderson Pack, you I'm should go not. and listen to Anderson Pack. Right. I think it, you know, if you like. Generally funky things you will probably dig. Anderson Pack—he's great. He's a terrific played, drummer. Played? I've played a bunch of his stuff. You like it? I uh-huh. uh, Particularly his Tiny Desk concert is—if you've seen any of those on YouTube, there's a series of NPR does these yeah. Tiny Desk concerts where they just get bands or musicians to do a few tracks as sort of acousticy, not not necessarily acoustic, but just sort of stripped down on a very 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 small set, which yeah. is behind someone's desk essentially. But Anderson Pack is phenomenally funky. He's a great drummer and he sings as well as drumming. And he went on a tour that was the best teeth in the game tour. He's just got this luminous smile. He's just an infectious, energetic quality. In this interview with him in The Guardian from this year, Dorian Linsky has a chat with him. And he comes across really, really well. He seems like a genuinely nice sort of chap. He's a bit sort of refuses to criticise Kanye, which I find questionable. But um, <laughs> I, think he's, I think he's just being diplomatic. He's sort of like... He, I think he doesn't agree with what Kanye is doing, obviously, with Trump, but it kind of essentially just puts him down by saying, I've never looked at him as a political figure or someone I needed to hear speak about different issues, which I think is a sort of very nice way of saying, yeah. I think you're talking a load of shit. Yeah. But he has had an interesting kind of career where he started out, submitted a demo, and, and it was rejected. He kind of reinvented himself again as a fan of Radiohead and Beck he was like, fuck this, I'm going to be the alternative black kid, I wear skinny jeans and cardigans and I'm indie rock now, eventually I got into music college and thought, what the hell am I doing I love black music, <laughs> <laughs> which I think is just really nice, and you know, he's, he's, his music is, is great, I think he's one of the people sort of in the game right now who are doing mm. some of the most exciting stuff, did a yeah. series of four albums all named after LA beaches but it's a real, it's a real <laughs> wide range of, of material, it's quite political he's, he manages to talk about sad and difficult things because he's experienced a lot of difficult things with family life his mother was like a a millionaire briefly and then lost it all and then made money again by being a professional gambler and then lost it all again and went to prison and so he's had sort of ups and downs but he manages to to put all of that into his music in a way that's not miserable and morose he has a sort of great sense of humor about stuff while not He's not being light about it. Give me a, a
0: nudge next time, time
2: you play yeah, in your office. He's, he's so like, really can...
1: well worth listening yeah. to. So. I'll look into that. Yeah. Anderson and Pat. I wonder if he has resting beach face. <laughs> <laughs> I'm here all I'm, I'm, I'm here all week. No, <laughs> <laughs>
0: No? to steal I think, your phrase yes i think it's time for us to sign off we're gonna go with a clip that we were talking about earlier robbie roxson talking about how they weren't allowed girlfriends in the yeah world. exactly what i
2: was talking about earlier
0: thank you so much for coming in simon you've it's been an absolute splendid guest well it's a pleasure to be here and barney hoskins will be back next week indeed he will and until then we'll say goodbye you you? goodbye goodbye goodbye
3: every once in a while there was somebody like that you'd want to see more than once and that was it. and the guys were already like whoa you know like uh, what's going on here yeah. and and it, it was a touchy thing yeah. and I mean I remember Rick nearly got fired one time for having a girlfriend how come just because it just, this wasn't the program this was not the idea you were not you were hired to be this I mean Ronnie wanted to have like the whole concept of having good looking guys that would make girls come to the places that you played because then guys would come to the places that you played and there was a whole thing about this so and and if you were no longer on the prowl then you were not really doing your, your complete job. So when you said the program, and it really is not
2: just music. It was a whole kind of life program. That's right. Oh, come on, baby, let's take a little walk. Tell me, who
0: do you love? Who do you love? Who do you love? Who do you love? Howling took me by the hand and said, Ooh, daddy, I understand. Who do you love?
2: That was Robbie Robertson in conversation with Tony Sherman in 1991, concluding this week's Rocks Back Pages podcast. Many thanks to special guest Simon Witter. The host was Mark Pringle, and it was co-hosted and produced by Jasper, Murrison Bowie. You can find thousands of articles, as well as hundreds of full-length audio interviews, at rocksbackpages.com.